Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, February 20th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. In addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have featured over 145 poets from 17 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or you prefer credit cards. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Anna Turner. Hi, Anna. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Of course. So you brought with you your poem, Paper Dolls. Um, before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, uh, my name is Anna at the moment. I'm in the UK, but normally I live in Lebanon. Um, I volunteer with an NGO there doing kind of drama, theatre related things in schools normally in normal times. Mm -hmm. um, my background's in theatre. I worked with a theatre company for about eight years um, mm -hmm. before I moved over to Beirut. And I'm involved in the poetry scene in Beirut as well. Mm -hmm. How did you uh, end up being in Beirut? I mean, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but I was wondering, the, like, the in impetus. Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I think probably I'd planned on, I, it wasn't, like, if you'd asked me, like, maybe 10 years ago, if uh, I thought I'd end up in Beirut, the answer would be pro probably not, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but I, with the theatre company I worked with, with in the UK, they had contacts in Beirut, and I went out a few times yeah. um, and saw what they were doing. Right. Um, and they, they did kind of similar things to what we were doing in the UK, and I kind of thought that was cool. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, a bit later on, I began to feel that actually, um, like, maybe Beirut was the place. Uh, I mean, I've got quite a strong... Uh, faith and I felt like it was the place that maybe God wanted me to be um, mm. it was a place I felt was right for me to be and I'd seen this NGO and I thought they did really great work and I wanted to do something to help more than just I don't know like I felt like more than just uh, in my country yeah to, mm. yeah to look outside of that as well mm. um, yeah and they had a place for me um, and something I could do so I thought that sounds like a good plan mm. yeah cool how long have you been in Lebanon then? Yeah, so it's four years. Like mm. it was four years in November um, oh, wow. that I've been there. So I've been learning Arabic in that time as well, which is, I think, going to be a lifelong process. Um, <laughs> it's an amazing language, but mm. it's so hard. Mm. <laughs> but it is beautiful. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm really partial to the calligraphy. It's just really pretty to me. Um, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of your own poetry practice, how did you get into poetry? Uh, so I always loved to write as a child. Mm -hmm. I wrote prose, like mostly. I'm talking when I was really little. And then when I was in primary school, maybe when I was eight, a teacher suggested I wrote poetry. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing poetry. It was not great, but it was, it was poetry. And I had a great time writing it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then as a teenager, I continued. Um, and there was a period of time where I didn't really write much, actually, uh, poetry-wise. And then maybe about, I think it must be about 10 years ago, um, I started to write more spoken word kind of style poetry to process through emotions and thoughts and stuff. Mm. Yeah, pretty, oh, actually, at university as well, I did a course um, on hearing and writing lyrics and poems, which was okay. really fun. Um, and just and that really was the moment when I, I realized that because before I just wrote poetry when the inspiration hit me, which wasn't very often. But in that course, I realized, no, I can sit down and write poetry like I can decide now I'm going to write a poem and write. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that was the revelation for me. It started me taking my poetry more seriously. Right, right. Huh, that's great. When you got to Lebanon, did you start uh, by going to the, uh, getting into the poetry scene right away, or did you, was it, did it come later? No, it took me a while to find it, actually. So mm-hmm. I think I'd probably been there about a year and a half, and then I saw on Facebook there was a poetry night advertised, like an open mic kind of night. So mm-hmm. I went along and it was amazing. It actually wasn't sidewalk, it was a, a different kind of uh, poetry night. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started going along um, to those and eventually I found sidewalk, um, which is a poetry night I attend weekly and I just loved it. I loved the community, I loved listening to other people, I loved the mix of languages. Yeah, I yeah. just loved it. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to replicate that online, right? But still, you do feel the very kind of familial atmosphere. Um, yeah. When everything happened with COVID and we couldn't meet in person anymore, um, I was really sad. And actually, I was really happy when we could meet online. And it, it isn't the same. But actually, there are, there are good things about it as well, because obviously, we get to have people from other countries um, come and with us too um mm. and i i find that exciting and good and a new different flavor to add um mm. and you can i don't know there is there's still that like really nice listening to each other's poetry and supporting each other yeah but I, that's one of the things i love about the in-person thing so it's not quite the same online but right. um yeah there are good things as well as disadvantages for being online right right exactly exactly so I wonder, I think now might be a good time if, if you don't mind reading your poem, Paper Dolls, for us, and we can talk about it. Yeah. And this is Paper Dolls. I remember the air, heavy with the silence as dust motes danced through it, highlighted by the sunlight as pens scratched on the paper. But as I turned mine over, it was no longer just the silence that was heavy. My dread scrunched itself up and sat in my chest. I did not know the answers to this test, despite studying and revising, memorizing. I was sure I would fail this. And the questions blurred as my eyes tried to answer them with salty streaks. And I remembered the teacher taking pity on me, telling me that this wasn't even a test that counted. But somehow a test that didn't count did not make sense. Even then, my standards were higher than his. And the teacher in my head was not as friendly. She watched over my shoulder for the slightest mistake. And when I made them, instead of lines, we would cut paper. Folding and folding and then cutting one human-shaped girl who unfolded to become many. Pristine, white, matching sharp edges, no unsightly creases, no out-of-place hair, seen and not heard. 
each fold and I must be better. And though my school days are well behind me, this teacher lingers. And there are days when still I hear her and my fingers start to fold almost of their own volition, neat rows of girls who are better. And somehow, no matter how many folds I make, how many times I whisper, I must be better, I am still never her. This perfect girl who always gets it right, never slips up or makes a mistake, never gets it wrong, never takes a breath, never creates, never lives. And slowly my fingers cease their folding and strike a match till smoke is curling up from the rows of pristine white girls who are perfect but not alive. And I set about the task of finding the real me. Scrunched up bits, wild colours, loud creativity, beautiful and broken, but with help on the mend, knowing that however many mistakes I make, real is better than pretend. Thank you. It's a wonderful um, metaphor that runs throughout the poem, and I love how you kind of enter the poem poem with this incident of a test and I was wondering I always wonder is it real is it based off of a real incident the test yeah it is when I was I don't know maybe 14 in school and it wasn't an important test it was not it definitely it wasn't even worth anything we're in a science lab on those high stools that we had in like science labs in the UK and and I just remember looking at this test and thinking, oh, I can't do it. And I don't, I don't even remember what mark I got in that test in the end. I probably didn't fail. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, and I do remember the teacher saying, no, this is fine. Like, you don't need to worry. You worry too much. This isn't like, this test isn't even for a, a grade, like, you know, mm-hmm. something that counts. Mm-hmm. But I just, yeah, like that sense of failing, right. no, no matter if it didn't like technically count or not, that is, yeah, what I remember from that, 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 oh, that fear and that sadness that comes. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, a lot of what we do in life, we kind of do in accordance to our own, the standards that we set for ourselves, the the critic that's that resides within us. And so, um. so I wanted... Uh, I was wondering about uh, this, your version of it, and why you um, assign her the role of uh, teacher. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think probably because it it came from the the metaphor of the the teacher in the real world, and it kind of was a metaphor that transfers easily into what was going on in my head. I think Mm. the critical voice in my head is always like in a, like almost like in a position, I feel like it's got authority. Mm. You know what I mean? Even though it's just me, like I know it's just me, this critical voice in my Mm -hmm. head, like Mm -hmm. I know that. But like, it feels like there's an authority. It feels like someone who's looking down on me. Mm. Um, And although, in fact, I'm pretty sure that I had wonderful teachers who were nothing like this critical voice in my head, but it seemed like to have someone in a position of authority who gets to grade you. I think that's it as well. 
like I think the critical voice in my head is permanently permanently grading me or trying to grade me Mm -hmm. um and yeah making me come up short or wanting and so I think the teacher fit that well Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I love the imagery of sort of this uh, origami girl you know it makes me think of those party uh, what do you call those those party favors you know that you hang Mm. those uh, little little girls in dresses that are holding holding hands basically so I was wondering what what image you had in mind and why you decided to go with with that particular uh this this image of folding a paper uh yeah actually that is the image that I had first before anything else in the poem and I actually think I wrote a first draft of this poem that started with the paper dolls, mm. um, but I decided that it needed to start with a concrete incident to draw it in. But in my head there, and I used to make these when I was a child with my mum, like we would cut them out, like one little girl that, uh, yeah, in dresses that then you could like fold and cut out and they would become a chain all holding hands. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and joined at the legs often as well. Um, and I just think... I think I was having a like a journaling session one day and I you know I realized that 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 is what like because often I like I was I think I was reading a book that talks about how some of us have this like some women grow up with this need to be the good girl like this is what they've got from Mm -hmm. I don't know growing up in childhood and school like this pressure to be that and I was thinking that is quite like me trying to be like these paper cutouts and Mm -hmm. I was just imagining myself trying to fit my edges into like that paper cutout (laughs) like Mm -hmm. and it not working because no real person is that shape um and I just thought it was a a good image of of what I'm trying for of the perfection that I'm trying for that isn't real and probably at the end of the day isn't even desirable Mm -hmm. um (laughs) like like yeah that isn't possible yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Um, that you know, you, you you take something from your childhood, something that you've done, actually making these little paper girls, and and talk about this um, idea of self criticism that way. You talk about this journaling session. Was it one of those generative uh, workshops, or what made you decide to write this particular poem? I think it was a reflection on, like, I was reflecting, it was more just a, like, for my own mental health kind of journaling session, and a reflection on on why it is, like, it, it, like most of my poems often stem from an issue in my life or feelings that I'm feeling mm-hmm. and trying to process it, mm-hmm. and I struggle a lot with this, like, feeling of inadequacy, mm-hmm. um, and so it was a processing for me um of that of why that's there um Mm. of like maybe how I can like a way to explore that and deal with it Mm. um because I I often find myself like if it yeah if I like if I like I've always known there's this perfectionism in me there's this drive um to be better and sometimes that is healthy and sometimes it and often it is unhealthy Mm-hmm. Um, and leaves me saying yes to too many projects or, um, yeah, like, mostly that's what happens. I try and do too many things. 
mm. because I don't want to let people down. I mm. yeah, I want to. And if if I get something, what is if I do something that I consider like wrong in my head, then I am anxious. Mm. Um, so this was a process really of dealing with that, of trying to put truth mm-hmm. in the place of lies that I believe about myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I I also thought it was uh, really interesting that you took on a lot of responsibility in this poem, being the person who criticized yourself, being the person who set yourself free. Um, at the same time, I was wondering, because it's not in the poem, if in your mind, in your processing of these tendencies, if you've come up with an answer as to how come this this sort of drive began. Yeah, this is this is an interesting question because yeah I've I've often thought about this and I think yeah I I think as a child I was anxious um, I think as I'm the first child the eldest born and I often think that comes with I think sometimes there can be like anxiety like parents are more anxious with their first child child and I think sometimes that comes through mm-hmm. um, to the child I think that. Um, both of my parents strive in similar ways maybe and although like they would never they never put that on me mm-hmm. um, like they just told me you know you you just do the best that you can do um, but there wasn't a, a like you must be perfect thing that they would verbally put on me mm-hmm. but for both of them I think sometimes they strive for that in their life and I think sometimes we learn I've often thought about learning behavior in that way Right. Um, and I think sometimes they feel like I, I, I've often thought about like um, yeah there's yeah sometimes you learn that kind of behavior um, in the environment you grow up in yeah yeah sometimes it's not it's not conscious right you just pick it up mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's I think it's really interesting how children learn through mimicry and um, not necessarily help you are taught, deliberately taught, but, but how you're being taught through the actions yeah. of others. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's funny because then you can look and you think, oh, but that wasn't what was taught to me verbally. Like, right. And then you can think, oh, wait, but that's not, that's not the only thing that you're taking in. Right. And I think for me as well, I, I, um, I think I, like I had friends, but I wasn't the most popular kid in school. And mm. like, Sometimes I was bullied, and the mm. thing I could do was like academically, I was I could be good, mm. and so I was like, if I, if I can't be popular, at least I can be good at this. <laughs> like, I think, yeah. and, like, and I think that probably is what like we all seek to have worth, and yeah. like I've since learned that my worth cannot be in what people think of me or in how well I'm doing, how successful I am, like. If we put our worth in those things, like we're gonna have disasters because we're never gonna succeed all the time, and no, not everybody's gonna like us. But it, at that point, when I was a child, I hadn't got to the point where I was like, "Oh yes, I can think this logically through," and of course, I can't put my worth here. I didn't even know my worth was there, but I'm, it was. Right. And so I think that was the unconscious thought in my head: that if I'm not, if I can't be popular, at least I can be good at studying. Like that, and that was never a conscious thought. But mm. most of the things that trap us are not conscious thoughts and we have to go and unpack them to find out where they're hiding yeah yeah definitely 
I think I think that's why. Because if we like if we actually consciously thought it, we'd be able to say actually that that's ridiculous. Um, That's not a sensible thought. But when it's unconscious, then you kind of end up building layers upon it without realizing. Yeah, yeah, we invest a lot more in it without knowing that we're investing in it. Um, it, it. It is really interesting. I also find that in addition to the academics, though, because how you describe these paper paper girls, that, you know, it, it goes into other areas as well, like behavioral areas and even, even just the physical appearance uh, areas, this idea of, you know, no yeah. hair out of place, quiet, uh, you know, not seen yeah. but not heard kind of. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, yeah, there's always, there's those things as well, aren't there? The things that we, that we grow up with, like the, the expectations around us, society's view of how we should look or what we're told we should look like. Like, there's so many. I feel like there are so many shapes, like, perfect shapes, whether it's academic, whether it's, like, physical appearance, that we try and fit ourselves into and often find ourselves... Well, I like, for me, it's like that, finding myself lacking mm. um, in those areas. Mm. And things that, at the end of the day, you realise, actually, this is this even a shape I want to be trying to press myself into? Right. <laughs> yeah, in this time, obviously, I answered, no, this, this isn't... These are, these are not living, creative, breathing, real girls. These yeah. are just images that I've decided I must press myself into. Yeah, and I, I find it interesting what you just said now that, about how there are so many different perfect shapes, right? It's basically perfect according to everybody else, except for yeah. us, basically. And, and and I wonder, I love how the sort of that that sense of agency that you gained through like through, later on through the poem that you decided not to continue with this folding process and that you decided to set yourself free by kind of setting fire to the to the impossible shapes and I, I wonder what that corresponds to in, in your own life and if you want to share it. Yeah. So I think and I it it means on a daily basis reminding myself that mm. I don't like this this image, this thing I'm trying to be is not achievable. Um and finding out who it is that I I don't know, who it is I was made to be and like to be free in that. I think for me, a lot of this process, as I said, like I've got quite a strong faith, and and for a while, my image of who God was and who He wanted me to be was really pretty legalistic. Like I kind of thought He wanted me to be this like perfect shape. Mm-hmm. Um, but on exploring my Christian faith more, I realised that like I felt like I, it was that like that He wanted me to be that perfect shape in order for Him to love me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in exploring my Christian faith more, I realised that that's not actually what Christianity says. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah, that God loves me um, as I am, and it's in it that it's in His power that I change to become more of the person I was designed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, actually, for me, it's a, a reminding myself on a on a daily basis of how loved I am mm-hmm. as I am, 
mm-hmm. um, because it's that security, knowing that I am loved as I am, mm-hmm. that allows me to put aside all these other things I've put my worth into, that allows me to set fire to those paper dolls of success or like the perfect body image or people liking me and to be able to say, no, I am loved. Mm-hmm. I am loved as I am um, by the creator of the universe. Um, and that means I'm free to explore who it is that I really am, to be who I've been made to be, not this pristine cutout of something I think I should be. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like the, the last few lines when you were talking about who you really are, the real you, and the, um, you know, there's a lot of colorfulness of it. There's a mention of not only just colors, but, but also creativity, and, and beautiful and broken, uh, and but with help on the men. So I was wondering if that corresponded uh, with your theater work that you've been doing. I think, yeah, so creativity, definitely. Like for me, it's taken me a while to realize that I am an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody I talked to about this is, is always reacts with surprise because for other people they're like no obviously Anna like that's that's who you are <laughs> um, and I think like the but I think because I I saw myself as very academic I saw myself as boring I think mm. um and I I think I like this idea that you know those paper cutouts they're boring and they're white and they're paper and they're plain but like who I am becoming is colorful and creative and not perfect, but beautiful and becoming um, ever better. Um, yeah, and I think I I like the idea of. Um, I, I think I think that's it because when we're trying to be, when we're worried all the time about what people think about us or succeeding, mm-hmm. we can't be creative. We can't be wild and beautiful and who we're supposed to be. And for me, it's, it's a process of really digging into who I am, because I grew up, I think, and and it, it there was a moment in my life when I was, I see a, a massive change and a freeing in me from this, like, being paralyzed by anxiety, mm-hmm. but I was paralyzed by anxiety, and in those moments, I didn't really know who I was, because I just spent my whole time trying to be who I thought I should be, or who other people wanted me to be, mm-hmm. and so although it like, I actually find it quite tricky. Like, this, it's this process of digging through and thinking, actually, who, who am I? But it's so rewarding because who I am is creative and, like, this whole wild color thing. And and that's much better than pretend. Like, we need to be who we were designed to be. The world needs us to be us, not mm. someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And when you're somebody else, you're replaceable, right? Because there's already mm. somebody else. So. Yeah, there's already there's already three million of <laughs> there's already someone else. You have to be who you are. <laughs> right, right. And I I just love the love how how you come to that realization and and to allow you to grow into yourself and to find yourself. Um, that that is always always a question. And of course, when you say who am I, it just made me think of Les Mis. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know that song that Jean Valjean sings, which is totally stuck in my head now. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> it's a great song. Always good to have a bit of blame in your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I need to decide to let that out and decide to, in some ways, revel in our own in- imperfections and because that makes us us. Yeah. I, yeah. And to... Uh, yeah, I, because as well, like that line says, like, real is better than pretend. Like, mm. I don't know. We, yeah. We have to be, yeah, who we are. Otherwise, we are pretending. Yeah, yeah. I always think of if we're always pretending to be somebody else and how can people like us for who we are, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think we kind of sort of talked about it a little bit before, but I... Was there any incidents that sort of made you, particular one that made you, or geared you toward this topic when you wrote this? Oh, I just remember now. I think I wrote this in the middle of being in lockdown, and mm. like in when the I, I was in Lebanon and the country was shut down. So I think what happened mostly, and I found like being. What, what I wrote another poem at a, sim, at a similar time about how it felt like my insecurities were magnified as the world I was moving in grew smaller. Mm. Um, because I think there's something I discovered that some of my anxieties I have about like not being good enough or comparing myself or like feeling like I've got things wrong in a relationship or mm. um, yeah, friendship. Um, those things often, if, if I am with one group of people and then I can go and spend time with another group of people or go to a different place, I look back and get perspective and think, oh, that's a silly worry. I don't need to think about it like that. <laughs> but I found when I was just in my house with my two housemates, like suddenly I couldn't get out to get perspective and all of the things, like the small insecurities that niggle at you that you can normally deal with, suddenly seemed much bigger mm. um, because they were all playing out in just two friendships. And I was like, so those poor two people had to deal with me getting insecure. Like, and, you know, all the normal like gripes you have in like with housemates, if somebody would be upset with me, I'd suddenly be like, oh no. <laughs> It's a major disaster, and yeah. everything would become bigger. So I think it was because my insecurities got magnified in that in that smaller space where you couldn't get out and get perspective. So I think it was probably like because of that 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 kind of spurred me to write the poem. Mm. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize this was a very new poem. When did you write it? Ah. Mm. Uh... I think probably, oh, I don't really remember. I think probably around April or May time, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been writing quite a few. In I Particularly, I really enjoy going to a regular open mic night because it makes me write more. Mm. Um, because I, I keep wanting, I try to make myself write a new poem um, for every time oh, uh, cool. that I went. It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like a discipline mm-hmm. um, to make myself write. Um okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was about that time because I remember I finished it while I was in my car waiting for, I was meeting, we were going to, me and my friend were filming clown videos for work, <laughs> um, and I was waiting for him to arrive, and I finished it in my car. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. wow. That's cool. Clown videos. That's That sounds, <laughs> that sounds intriguing and kind of scary because <laughs> clowns are scary. <laughs> I wasn't being the clown. I was just the director. Although I love being a clown, um, <laughs> like a proper theatrical clown. I, I don't. You don't really need all the makeup to be a clown. Just the red nose. And clowns are innocent and childlike and amazing. Um, mm-hmm. 
I think I much prefer being a clown to watching clowns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. So that's uh, that's sort of in the beginning of like the global shutdown when everyone was basically forced to confront whatever the hell we were trying, we needed to confront. Oh my God. I think that's it, right? You get shut into a small space with the same set of people and your issues are going to come out. (laughs) Whether you like it or not, you can't escape them. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Definitely. It's amazing because that time, that was the time when everybody basically just, this new world suddenly kind of trapped us in it and we were just like and now what <laughs> yeah wow yeah that's great it's it's a wonderful poem i love how you kind of both show the journey that you went through and also the sense of resilience the sense of um it's like you're revolting against it as well yeah and I think this idea of living up to standards is sort of what I is what I picked up, uh, and the yeah. reason why I uh, I actually wrote this poem in reaction to your poem, because um, I, I feel privileged. <laughs> thank you. It's called a, a stroll down memory lane. So I'm gonna read that, and then we're gonna talk about it. Great. Plucking eyelashes and shaving brows, a hairless head crowned rosy cheeks, presented worries that could not rest. Feet that then grow fast enough, odor that offended her nostrils, form conversation from complaints. Teeth that stain from poisonous pills offer moments of regret from taking expert advice, return year upon year. Never thin enough, always too short, a reminder of someone she hates. Neurosis, matrilineal, passed down the generations like family heirlooms. House empty of figures, handle as if childhood dolls, stumble away in disfigurement. There are such powerful images in that poem. Thank you. When I hear this, like, even from the very beginning, what I see, like, is the image of a doll. Was that an image that you had in your head as you were writing this? Yes, yes. Uh, I always had the feeling that I was sort of treated as if I was my mom's uh, dolly. Oh, that's a tricky thing to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to this day, I don't think she realizes the effects of the things that she did and how that kind of psychologically screwed with my head (laughs) and also obviously my self-image. Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, so when when you started to write this poem, so you said you wrote it in response to what I'd written, what part of what I'd written made you enter into this topic? Yeah, was it the image of the dolls? Was it, like, the kind of the theme? Um, what was it that was a springboard into what you wrote? It was both. Uh, but 
uh, imagery wise, I, I felt like it was the paper dolls thing, especially the name paper dolls. I was like, dolls, yes, that. And also the imagery that you put, uh, you wrote about how, you know, these dolls are sort of imperfect in their shape, right? Because somebody shaped them to be that. Uh, and there's nothing out of place. And, and in these incidents that my mom told me that she did to me, <laughs> that I, I felt like this is what she was trying to do to with me as if I were a dolly where she's trying to shape me in the image of whatever she had in her head as perfection. Yeah, I see that in in all sorts of things. And so, so are these when you were writing these things? Like, are these are these memories that you have, or what your mom told you that she did, or a mix of both of those things? It's sort of a mix of most most of them are what she told me, but it's also memories of what she telling me this. So uh, yeah. So, like the odor that offends her, offended her nostril, is it something that she did recently? Uh, and she's done uh, previously. It's it's something that's uh, that's in her repertoire, shall we say? <laughs> so, I, I think she, uh, whether or not she realizes it, she uses certain methods for control, and this is one of them, the ones that she uses. And only recently have I been able to get away from the pain that it causes, which she wants to cause, again, as a method for control, and then turn around and be able to say things like, well, then stop smelling me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, So it's similar to you going through sort of like an inventory of these incidents and realizing, come to, coming to the realization and that they were tools for control. Um, yeah. And that they were, at some point, it, it was no longer playing dollhouse. It was more how she can channel her lack of control in her life into controlling this person that she made in essence, uh, into the person that she, I don't know, person, just the thing that she wants to have uh, absolute power over. Yeah. Wow. So the the she and the her in this this poem, this is your mum? Yeah, yeah, this is one of the very autobiographical poems that I've written, and I don't obviously name who she is. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I'm treating her like for a Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she who not shall not be named. <laughs> <laughs> Matrilineal passed down the generations like family heirlooms. I just think that is a, like a beautiful and yeah, like sad and true image 
Oh, yeah, my relate to that as well. Like it just, I don't know. It just struck me as a beautiful image. Um, like those family heirlooms. Thank you. I feel like I I might have taken that the heirloom family heirloom idea from someone else, but I couldn't. I was thinking, I was reading over, and I was like, where did that come from? I think I've heard it somewhere before, and I couldn't place it exactly um, where. Uh, so I, I can't claim complete credit for it. I like it so much because I think sometimes with family heirlooms, they're things that you want, and sometimes they're not things you want. <laughs> so they, like, even the objects, like, that get passed down, so they're quite a good metaphor. Yeah. Things going, things going. And I think often those things, when we look at our lives, we can see those neuroses that pass down through generations. And it is like heirlooms that are handed from one to another, and it happens unconsciously. And often we don't know how to stop it. And it takes, yeah, concerted effort yes. <laughs> to, to reject some of the things that we get handed down. Yeah. Oh my god, exactly, exactly. It just, it takes so much work. I feel like, you know, half of our lives is sort of like erasing all the bad things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, it is. When you were writing this poem, do you feel like there's any resolution to, I mean, because the poem, obviously there is, the end of it is, ah, oh, like houses empty of figures and childhood dolls stumbling away in disfigurement. Like it feels like a pretty permanent, like that, like a pretty permanent. Well, not permanent, but it feels like that the, the ending is this still in this disfigurement. Did you feel as you as you wrote it any resolve to some of the feelings that that you're addressing, or is it like an in the midst of the process poem? To me, this actually is a pretty optimistic poem for poems that I tend to write. Um, usually, my poems tend to just start and end, or, or actually, it could start well and then it ends in just like complete in the dumps kind of ending. Uh, <laughs> just like, yeah. Similar to your poem, the ending is also about moving away from it not necessarily achieving our own perfection but you know mm. just starting to have our own lives mm. so i would say in terms of where i am psychologically speaking it's it's definitely in the process it's i don't know if we ever get to our own version of perfection um, no yeah I think life is a journey, isn't it? It's a process. Yeah. Um, and particularly, I think, with yeah these kind of issues. I once heard somebody describe like issues like this, uh, I suppose like anything to do with our emotional and mental well-being, as often we feel like uh, we're going round and round in circles, but somebody said it's a bit like onions. Like you go round and round, and as you go round and round, you get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. And I often see that as a good metaphor for these kind of issues. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think one of the aha moments is to realize that it's 
it is painful. It's ex- extremely painful to have gone through this, to realize that you've gone through this and that somebody has done this to you, right? At the same time, you have to realize that it wasn't really about you. It was about them. Yeah. And in, yeah. in that way, it's, it's very freeing, very freeing to realize that. And then I think in, in many ways you stop thinking, well, then how can I change myself to make this go away? And you start thinking, how do I deal with, if I have to deal with it, how do I deal with uh, the underlying problems that's there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because then we can... I think it's one we I think because... I imagine for so much of this stuff in our in our childhood, there's this feeling of like, oh, there must be something to do with me, mm-hmm. um, something inherently wrong in me. But to realise, no, this is more to do with like how the other person was doing, and yeah, issues that they were not dealing with well. I can imagine that would be a really yeah yeah. It's, it's interesting. I see now as I read that end bit, the houses empty of figures, handles with childhood dolls, stumble away in disfigurement. Like those false, like, like those, like that shape of things that you would felt like you were trying to be pressed into, stumbling away. That is optimistic, <laughs> I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because. Because you, you do get away, you, you are away so that you don't have to deal no, anymore with the immediacy of it because it's always, it's sort of like being caught in the fire, right? <laughs> like when you're yeah. in the middle of it. So you're so busy firefighting that you cannot see past the flames that's in front of you. You cannot see past it and to understand what was the cause of it all. And, and I think and think that's sort of essential in in any kind of abusive situations uh, yeah yeah i think that's really true yeah. i also uh i tend to name poems after i write the poem and this name uh-huh. i don't know if it comes across it's sort of a like my being very sarcastic <sighs> yeah <laughs> yeah i can see that and that's it because i oh, i don't know because memory lane makes it sound like, oh, yeah, something nice that we'd want to think about. We're strolling through. <laughs> yeah. It's a juxtaposition between that and then the plucking eyelashes and shaving brows. Yeah. Yeah. To me, because I've lived through it, I, even though, as I mentioned to you, um, after I sent the poem to you, like, I physically got uncomfortable, very uncomfortable writing yeah. this poem just like this this pit of stomach churning kind of like an acid reflux kind of thing after writing it i was just like ew why (laughs) a very disgusting kind of feeling uh writing this poem uh yeah that sounds like a very visceral reaction um did that do you think that that comes from the feelings that it's dealing with like the or the way the memory is what the me- yeah, how the memories make you feel. 
Yeah, I, I think so. I think it sort of brought me back to whether or not I realized that. I don't think I realized that while I was writing it. Yeah, I kind of had to. When I was writing, I was just writing it, and then I kind of reflected on it. And it just brought me back to those moments, to finding out some of these things. Because, like, the plucking eyelashes, the first stanza is, um, well, first, second stanza, there were, there, there were, it, it's sort of chronological. So it was, the, especially the first stanza was some things that I did not know that she did until she told me years later. I was like, wow. yeah. And, and I realize these days that certain things that she tell me, she's telling me for effect as well. Not just the yeah. doing, but the telling. Yeah, so really those, those feelings are, like, are coming from those moments when she's telling you what happened as opposed to the, the mem- your memory of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Because there, there are certain things I just don't, I, I was too young to remember. Yeah, and also the, the way she was telling me, it was almost like a sense of pride. It's like sort of like, hey, here, I fixed it, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that, that link between what we were talking about before, that that shape that we're either we press ourselves into or we're pressed into by those around us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that isn't who we really are. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, uh, as you said, the shapes that people sort of superimpose onto you to say, oh, wait, why don't you, why don't you meet this? Why aren't you meeting this? What's wrong with you that you're not meeting this? Yeah. yeah. One thing, like, you, you mentioned earlier on that, um, yeah, there are moments now when you're able to, like, like, say, when your mum says things that you feel like are said to, for effect or to control you, you're able to, like, to say something back to that, to not take that on. Like, what what made you able to do that? Like, is there a, was there a moment when a, a change happened or is it something that you've gradually learned to be able to deal with? I, I think similar to you, right? It's very gradual. Because you, you kind of do it through iteration. There's first sort of like trying to understand why that is. Why why is this happening? Why why is she doing this? Uh, and also part of it is because in our relationship, I'm the one who's much more willing to do the work to make it better. Well, partly because she was making me miserable. And, and I realized the process of making me miserable was... Not necessarily making her happy because I don't think she understood that she was caught in this loop, but but that she, it was so automatic that when we're in each other's company, it would trigger this and it will start. Yeah. And it will continue to happen. And, and it's always the same loop, and even though the details are a bit different each time. Um, and so I was trying to understand what the heck it was, and I, I did go to therapy uh, I think um, that probably gave me some of the foundational tools I needed to have better understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Therapy is great. <laughs> yes, therapy is incredibly important. Just, you know, like, if nothing else, having that other perspective, you know, like, yeah. somebody who's... It just helps that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is that other perspective, somebody who can speak into that. 
Yeah. Somebody who you know you you can you can trust at least from the from the aspect that you know they are not an uh, interested party in this particular scenario. Yeah. Yeah, that really helps. Like an outside eye. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a trained one. I find it very useful speaking. <laughs> yeah. easy to find the right therapist either because um, sometimes you get into a similar relationship dynamic even with the therapist and you're like damn it (laughs) this is to take yourself out of it at the moment right i mean because especially if you're in a relationship with another person who's either less aware or less willing to do what it takes to maintain the relationship because somehow despite all the discomforts that comes with it they are comfortable with those discomforts yeah i think as well uh, i don't know sometimes i you come across people who you know that they're so much, they have lived so long, like kind of on the surface without digging deep into the, these things, that to dig deep would be, like, even though ultimately it's better, it's hard like to make that decision to dig deep because it is painful going through those things you have to dig through to make it right, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's... But it is worth it. <laughs> it is definitely worth it because then you kind of, you feel like you can come up for air. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. I've always seen it like there's a, a kid's film, Wally. Like mm. they've left the planet Earth because they've destroyed it, and it's like many years later, and it's safe to go back. Um, but they don't. The, there's an automated thing on the ship that says, "No, why would you want to go back? You've got everything need, you need to survive here." And the human captain says, no, I don't want to survive, I want to live. Mm. Um, but And that's it, really. Like, we can survive, but to really live, that means, and in this, in the metaphor of the children's film, they have to go back and sort out the earth that is now ready to be lived on again, but still full of rubbish. Um, and in our lives, that's what we have to do sometimes, sort through the rubbish so that we can not just survive, but live. <laughs> but it is. Yeah. Yeah. It it really is a big effort, and I think I think that's that's the difference, right? Do you want to survive or do you want to thrive? And you know, I I feel like this survival mode that I found myself in, it is just so tiring. You never feel like you can let things go. You never feel like you can relax and just. You know, you, you don't you don't have the room to even 
be yourself. Um, yes. And so I, it's very tiring. And I, I think some of us, we're so used to the survival mode. The thriving mode is so unfamiliar that sometimes we get ourselves back into the survival mode because it's, it's what we know. sad but sometimes it does take that um, to to make us finally decide to change decide to go forward and go into an unfamiliar area but that ultimately might be better for us yeah 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 i think that's it i think it does sometimes take getting to that really bad place to go okay no this is enough is enough time to deal with this right and we don't even know that that we are like the loop that we're in it's sort of like a traveling loop we're sort of like it's almost like we're 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 the hamster caught in a tire or something and we're just like (laughs) pedaling 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 until we get into a dumpster dumpster fire and then you're like why is it so hot i don't understand this (laughs) Sometimes we don't notice it until it's too late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then suddenly you're forced to jump out of the tire and to find a new something that maybe fits much better. And, and sometimes ending those loops is really tricky. Like sometimes you can see, like often with the anxiety that I struggle with, I see I'm in the loop, right? And I know that it's a silly loop. <laughs> I shouldn't be in it. But cutting it off and getting out of it, tricky yeah i wonder i mean do you have like um has your therapist kind of helped uh in terms of finding behavioral things that you can do when you when you realize that you're in that loop that can help you get out of it yeah so like i well i did a lot of like cbt cognitive behavioral therapy Mm -hmm. uh stuff and that was so helpful for me in like stopping the leaps in my head like and now even like so like in the last few months I found my anxiety higher than it was before I think related to some of the stress of the situations that I've been in um and so I I I was speaking to someone about that and another kind of therapist lady and she was saying but what did you do before and I was like oh yes (laughs) like this is anxiety for a different reason but it's the same anxiety I have steps that I can do and then for me, it's a stopping and a processing and like often journaling helps me writing those thoughts down. And if I can and give myself permission, like often when I'm in that place, it's about giving myself permission not to be anxious um, because I feel like I have to be as part of the loop in my head. Mm. Um, and then just spotting the lies that I'm believing 
and replacing them with food. Like doing that in a really specific, I'm going to write it down or even think it through kind of way. Or talking it out with someone. Yeah. But spotting it is helpful. Being like, oh yes, this is a loop. <laughs> let's, let's spot it and stop. Yeah. Breathe. Breathing's good. Yeah. Yeah. Breathing is definitely good. Um, it sort of it calms your body and take your body out out of the survival yeah. mode. Actually, when I did I did a course on art and trauma healing once, which was awesome. Um, and I learned in that that like breathing really helps because it's one of the few things that we do both that we can do both consciously and unconsciously, mm. and it taps into that like base part of the brain that deals with fire and flight. And kind of hooks it up with your conscious brain again. Yeah. And I really, yeah, enjoy that knowledge that there's a real good scientific reason why focusing on your breathing helps. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great that they've done research on that. And finally, we, we know the reason behind it instead of just gurus telling us to breathe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was also like, wait looking at that I was like oh this is why like there were other bits and I was like this is why drama helps so much as well like you're just like because I've often like drama and movement like particularly rhythmic movement yeah and I, like oh yeah this is great like sound basis for this yeah I mean the getting getting you back in your body kind of thing right mm. yeah yeah for, for me as well, I, I think one of the one of the things that help is uh, to realize that you can also ask for help. You know, bring other mm. people in. You don't have to handle everything by yourself. Yeah. When you are in a loop with someone else, and mm. they really want to keep you in that loop. Yeah. Uh, and even no matter what you try, what methods you use, they're just like, let's focus on the loop. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So and it's like, okay, go, 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 find somebody else to play with. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when when you're in the moment, when you get caught in the tra- drama, especially when your emotions get engaged, it's not always easy to uh, realize that and and stop and take stock and uh, and exit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Particularly not if the other person, yeah, is not keen to end the loop. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> They're like, I'm still, I'm still trying to reach my high. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's so, it is so tiring. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we both have some like coping mechanisms in place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think those are important. From that, <laughs> from that, that even even in talking about it, it's kind of exhausting. <laughs> um, yeah, I think talking about the deep stuff often is. Yeah, yeah. It, it in a way is reliving it, uh, but um, it's good again to unpack it to talk about the experience with someone else. But uh, moving away from that, I was wondering if, you know, for pleasant things, if you have any virtual open mics that you would recommend to people and also how 
uh, people might follow you on social media or, or if you have a website? The virtual mic, a virtual open mic that I attend lots is the sidewalk one, which is Beirut's one, mm-hmm. um, on Wednesdays. Um, and in terms of following me on social media, I'm anact8 on Instagram, um, and I'm Anaterno on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you can find me on social media. Okay, great. Sorry, can you say that again, the Instagram one? Yeah, it's anact8. Oh, Anak. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for yeah, having me on. Of course, of course. And for sharing your poetry with me. Yeah, and I love learning about people, getting to know one another better in, in a different way. So. Uh, yeah, me too. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. In addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.